tell you a quick story. A few years ago, I got the opportunity out in Colorado to go hunting with, with some of my friends. Um, we got a picture of that. Ross has his eyes closed, which that's not how he hunts. He actually hunts with his eyes open, so he's much safer to hunt with. But uh, we, we were bird hunting, which is the first time I've ever done anything like this. Uh, and in this hunt, see, I'm used to kind of deer hunting, duck hunting. Like those things are where you sit stationary, you try to be quiet. This was, we were walking around in a field, right? We were walking around in a field with my friend Jim and his dog named Murph, right? Murph would, would kind of run around and he would scare these birds up in the air, which would then scare us and then we would shoot them for scaring us, right? That's kind of how it went. Like, it was scary, right? Now, now I don't know if it was just kind of my ADHD brain or what, but I couldn't, the whole time we were walking around out in this field, I couldn't take my eyes off this dog, right? Murph was incredible, like Murph the Wonder Dog. He was so smart. He was so well-trained. Uh, just kind of watching him teach us how to hunt. And it was funny, too, because he scared up a, a bird, and I shot at it, and I missed it, and he looked at me like, are you serious? Like, seriously, I've never been shamed by a dog before, and I felt like, Murph, I'm sorry. Like, I felt the need to apologize in that moment. Like, I know I let you down, buddy. I I'm really sorry. But, but here's the thing. Murph would do something that was really interesting. Again, highly trained dog. He would do something that was interesting, and that, this, that was this. Every time we would kind of step out of the field, you know, over to the truck to, to resupply or whatever, Murph would stand kind of in between Jim's legs, right? So Jim's standing, kind of resupplying, all that kind of stuff. Murph would stand directly between Jim's legs, and he would look up at Jim the whole time, right? And it was like, the, the, like I wish... My kids looked at me the way that Murph looked at Jim. Like, just, I love you. You're the greatest. You're the best. Right? Just looking at him the whole time. And the crazy thing was, wherever Jim would move, Murph would move with him. So if Jim would walk forward, Murph would stay right in that spot, looking up at Jim, going, where are we going next? Where are we going next? He would stay right in that, that space. And so I asked Jim, what's this all about? Like, what, what is this? Like, what is this kind of maneuver that, like, you and Murph do when we're not out in the field? And he said that Murph has been trained to know that standing beneath me is the absolute safest place to be, right? And he says, if he stands here, if Murph stands here, and he watches me, and he moves with me, and he stays with me, he won't get accidentally shot by one of us or some other hunter, Right? And you start thinking about it, you go, that makes sense, right? If Murph decided to just kind of run around out in this field surrounded by people like Ross who hunt with his eyes closed and with shotguns, right? If Murph decided to just kind of run around out in this field, he would wind up probably getting shot or killed. He'd be mistaken for a target. But Murph was trained to know that by, by staying with Jim, by staying under Jim, by always keeping his eyes up on Jim, he would be safe, safest place to be. And I know kind of what you're thinking, right? We're talking about worship, like what, where are we going with this? Like what does the incredible Murph have to do with digging into and unpacking these disciplines, right, that we've been talking about for the last month, these disciplines that, that Jesus personally practiced in his humanity? What does a dog have to do with spiritual disciplines? What does a dog have to do with resolutions, right? What does a dog have to do with the kinds of things that Jesus practiced in his humanity that enabled him to be the kind of person who could do the things that he did, right? And we've been talking about these, these disciplines, right? Prayer, obedience, being word-centered. We talked about that last week. Exaltation, we're talking about that today. And, and relational intentionality. These are the things that led Jesus to live this life of power, right? You look at the kind of acrostic, whatever. It, 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 it is, it's the word power. Jesus' life had a powerful influence. And that's undeniable. 
Jesus' life had a powerful, how do we know that? Well, here we are 2,000 plus years later across an ocean in a completely different country and on a completely different continent we're talking about him. Right? That's how you know Jesus' life had a powerful influence. And so Jesus practiced these as a human being, right? as a man, as a person, just like us. And these disciplines are the same disciplines that Jesus used to, to train his disciples. Right? The disciples that we read about in the Bible, right? the, the followers of Jesus that went on to, to continue that movement of disciple making, these are what Jesus taught them. And that's what they taught other people. They taught other people the same thing that, that Jesus taught them. And they're the same disciplines that we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and through the truth of the Bible, can also train in. Right? We find these disciplines in the truth of Scripture. The Holy Spirit, the presence of God, meets with us as we train in these disciplines, all so that we can become the same kind of people that Jesus was, so that we can do the same kinds of things that Jesus did. And it's important, I said this last week, and it's important that, that we hang on to this. When it comes to discipleship, when it comes to training in Jesus, we have to understand this. We're not trying to do everything that Jesus did. Right? We're not. We're not trying to do everything that Jesus did, but here's what we're doing. We're training and we're learning how to do everything that we do in the same manner that Jesus did all that he did. Right? So we can train the same way that Jesus trained. We can train the same way that Jesus trained his disciples. And his disciples, by the way, went on to do everything that he did. Right? He tells them in John 14, you're going to go on and do the same things you've seen me do. In fact, you'll do greater things than you've seen me do. And if you read through scripture, you can see that, that the disciples did everything that Jesus did. They repeated almost every single miracle that Jesus did. It's pretty incredible. And so the question that we ask then is this. How can I train to become the same kind of person that Jesus was in his life so that I'm also then able to do the same kinds of things that he did with my life, right? That's the, that's the aim in all of this. That's why we spend time with Jesus. That's why we learn from Jesus. That's why Jesus then commands and commissions us to go and do the same thing that he did, which is make disciples. And so like, like Matt said this, this morning, we're talking about exaltation, which is this kind of fancy word for, for worship, right? And the reason that we go with exaltation and not worship is because it makes the acrostic work, right? It would just be power, right? But we got to put the E in there, right? So, so it just makes the acrostic, go with it, right? This is like cheesy pastor stuff, just go with it. So, so, so what in the world do exaltation and worship have to do with Murph the Wonder Dog? I read this week in a, in a book by a guy named Dallas Willard, he says this, the only safe place for a human being, for human beings to stand is in the constant and consistent attitude of worship. See, like Murph, who trained to know and understand that, that, that standing beneath Jim and keeping his eyes on Jim, he was trained to know and understand that that was the safest place to be. When we train and we practice exaltation, when we train and we practice worship, what we learn is this, that standing close to God and keeping our eyes on him leads us to the safest place that we could ever hope to be, that we could ever hope to live out our lives. And again, I, I get what you're thinking because I thought the same thing as I was studying through this this week. Like, how does that work? Like, how is that, how is that a true statement? Like, I never thought of worship like that. You know, like, typically what happens when we think about worship, like, worship is the singing part. 
of church, like, that we do before the sermon and after the sermon, right? And for some of us, it's like worship doesn't feel safe at all because some of us, it, it's a ter- we're terrible singers. I can hear you, right? My dad and I both have perfect pitch. I can hear you. I'm the only one. It's okay, and I'll never say anything bad about it, all right? Just understand that, right? But here's the thing. Like, it doesn't feel safe, right? For some of us, it's like the fact that, that someone might hear me and mistake me for a dying cat doesn't feel safe at all. Like, like are you okay? Like, like, you're singing this song, and people are going, are you all right? Are you okay? Do you need medical attention? I get it, right? But here's the thing. Music and, and expressions of, of worship, music and singing, those things are expressions of worship. It's just one way. Right, music and singing, they help us practice. They help us train in, in worship. But, but worship, what worship really and truly is, is so much bigger than the songs that we sing at church or, or the songs that you listen to uh, on, on Christian radio or the songs you listen to, the, the worship songs you listen to or the worship concerts you go to. It's so much more than that. So if you've got your Bibles or your Bible apps with you, grab those open to John chapter 4. We're going to live in kind of one story today, so you're not going to have to flip back and forth. And here's the deal. If you came today and you don't have a Bible or a Bible app and you need one, there are free Bibles on the back table. We would love for you to take one home, right? We want people to have access to a Bible, a hard copy Bible, not just an app. They're back there. They're free. Please pick one up and take it home. So John chapter 4. I, we've taught on this story before, but we're going to teach on it today from a little bit of a different angle. And just so we all know what's, what's going on here, in the story that we're about to read, Jesus, in true Jesus fashion, breaks just about every cultural and societal law there is. Like Jesus is a Jewish rabbi, right? So Jesus is a Jewish man. He's a Jewish rabbi. A rabbi was kind of a, a spiritual leader and, and teacher. And Jesus, in this story, chooses on purpose to walk through the, the country of Samaria, Jews and Samaritans hated each other, right? Hated each other. I don't have time to go into like all the history of why, but let me just say this. There were three routes. There were three routes you could take from Galilee, which is kind of the northern part of the kingdom, and and then Judea, which is the southern part of the kingdom. There's three different routes you could take. There was one route that would only take you three days, right? You could walk for three days if you went straight through Samaria, right, from Jerusalem to, to Galilee, right, from the, from the south to the north or north to the south, either way, three days if you just took a straight line through Samaria, right. The other two routes took over a week to walk. And Jews hated Samaritans so much that they would never walk that short route. Instead, they would literally add three to five full days of walking before they went anywhere near where people in Samaria, where the Samaritans lived. Right, they'd walk around, way around to the outside. That's how much they would walk for, for literally three to five days solid, more than they had to, to avoid being anywhere near Samaritans in Samaria. So, so not only did Jesus in this story go where he wasn't supposed to go, he also chooses in the middle of Samaria to sit down at a well that belonged to Samaritans. And then he chose to start up a conversation with a Samaritan woman. And so no Jewish person, let alone a Jewish spiritual leader or teacher, would ever be caught dead doing any of these things. And when you read this story, you can see that this woman, she's even kind of shaken up by this. She's kind of taken back by what Jesus says. Jesus asks her for a drink of water. It says that Jesus was tired. Again, if you doubt the fact that Jesus, in his ministry, operated as a human being, it says Jesus was weary from his journey. You would be too if you walked for two days. So he sits down at this well, and he asks this woman for a drink. And she looks at Jesus like, uh, 
what are you doing? Like, you know, you know you're not supposed to talk to me, right? Like, you know, we, supposed to, you know we hate each other? Like, you know that, right? You know, you know I'm not supposed to talk to you, let alone help you, right? Let alone help you get a drink of water. Like, Samaritans would rather see someone like Jesus die of thirst than help them get water. She says, like, you know, you, you know, you know, you could get in trouble for talking to me. You know, you're going to get me in trouble if, if, they, if people see us talking to one another. And, and so this, this kind of interaction was already kind of tense and awkward, right? It was, it was already kind of a, a tense and awkward thing. There was, there was tension in the air. If you stepped into this moment, you probably could have cut the tension with a knife. And, and Jesus, again, takes things a, a little bit further. Let's see what he says and pick up in verse 16. It says, Jesus said to her, go and call your husband and come here. Go back and get your husband. Come back here. Let's talk. And the woman answered him, I, I have no husband. And Jesus says, you're right in saying that you have no husband. For you've had five husbands. And the one that you have now is not your husband. What you've said is, in fact, true. One author had, had this to say kind of about what's unfolding here. Jesus, Jesus' request for this woman to, to call her husband was both proper and strategic. Like, Jesus isn't just, like, walking this woman into a trap. It was, like, culturally proper. It was the thing to do. It was proper because it was good etiquette. For a woman to talk with a man without her husband present, that, was, that wasn't the right thing to do. It wasn't good etiquette for a man and a woman to kind of talk without the woman's husband present. Right? So Jesus was doing the right thing. I mean, he'd broken all the other laws. He's like, well, I might as well just stick with this one. But it was strategic because it placed this woman in a dilemma from which she could not free herself without truly admitting her need. See, this woman had been trading sex for rent. Essentially, trading sex for rent and a roof over your head. And I'm just going to go out on a limb and saying that that probably wasn't the life that she dreamed of when she was a little girl growing up. You know what I hope for myself? I hope that I'm so alone and insecure financially when it comes to my resources that I have to trade my body for a roof over my head. That's what I'm going for. That's my plan in life. I'm going to guess that probably was not what she thought. And beyond that, beyond just that being her lifestyle, the fact that that was her lifestyle, like she had developed a reputation in the community. Who she was and what she did was common knowledge in her hometown. And see, John, he tells us that, that all of this is happening around noon. He says it's in the sixth hour, the way they kind of judged hours was it's you started it at first light right so the first time you see light outside the sun coming up that's hour one so sixth hour would be right around noon six hours after daybreak so it's right around noon and most people would have come to this well earlier in the morning when it was cool outside but this woman because of her reputation she's coming to the well in the middle of the day right why well because if she came to the well when everybody else did it wasn't safe. It wasn't safe for her to show up early in the morning. It would have been better. It would have been way more comfortable, way more convenient. But it wasn't safe for her to show up. She would have been an easy target. The dirty looks, the, the, the insults, things like that, passive-aggressive stuff that was said just loud enough for her to be able to hear. Like the constant reminder from people that her life is a wreck. She, she wasn't safe to show up in the morning, so she shows up at noon probably like she did most days she probably showed up at noon most days and this day she 
same as any other day, shows up at noon thinking like, this is a safe time, this is a safe place, that nobody's going to be there. I'm going to go to the well like I normally do in the middle of the day, nobody's going to be there. And, and that day, not only was someone there, but it was a Jewish rabbi. And based on the bomb that he just dropped, right, it, it's clearly, clearly he's heard from someone somewhere about her life and about her reputation, so she does what most of us would do, and she tries to change the subject. Right? Check out what it says in verse 19. It says, the woman said to Jesus, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem, that's the place where people ought to worship. Now, let me just give you a quick tip, okay? If you're, if you're going to try to kind of move Jesus out of your personal life, the, way you, the, the, way you, the worst way you could do this, the way you don't want to do this is start a theological argument with him. Right? It's like, Jesus, it's a little too personal. Uh, can we talk about theology? That's not the route to go. Right? Girl, you don't know who you're messing with here. You don't know who you're dealing with. And Jesus goes, woman, believe me, the hour is coming. He tell, he's like, all right, we'll go there. Like, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jer Jerusalem will you worship the Father, God. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. He just, in this moment, Jesus is referencing himself. He's Jewish. And salvation for humanity would come through a Jewish man. It would come through the Jewish people. But Jesus says this. He says, the hour is coming, and it is now here. Like, it's now. It's not something that's off in the future. It's, it's right now, in this moment. The hour is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father, he says, is seeking such people to worship him. It says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman hears this and says, well, I know the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. Jesus, like Christ was not Jesus' last name, right? Christ is a word that means chosen one, right? It means God's chosen one, the Messiah, the one who will save us, right? So she says, I know that the, that the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ, the chosen one of God. And when he comes... He'll be able to tell us all things. So like Jesus, she, she tries to get Jesus out of her personal life by starting a theological argument. Jesus kind of goes along with the theological argument. And then she doesn't like his answer and says, well, you know, that's, I guess that's okay. But there's this one who's called the Messiah. When he gets here, he'll make all this clear. And Jesus says this, um, it's me. I, who you speak to, am he. So we've taken kind of a long way around here. But... I needed us to see something. I need us, needed us to, to see the fact, like, Jesus, he's got to blow up our limited understanding of what worship is like he did for this woman. But this wasn't just a conversation about her past. This wasn't just a conversation about the mechanics of worship and, and where do you worship and how do you go to church. It wasn't about that. Jesus was blowing up this whole perspective, this, this understanding of what worship is. And you're going to see here in just a second that, that Jesus actually deals with the ache in this woman's soul the same way that he deals with the aches in our soul. And he does that by answering the worship question. But this woman had an ache in her soul. We don't know what it is, right? All we know is how she was acting. We know that, that she was trading her body for shelter, for security, for rent, whatever. There was an ache in her soul that led her to do that. Just like there's aches in our souls that lead us to do certain things. And Jesus, he's going to answer that question. He's going to deal with the ache in our soul by answering this, this worship question. But what I want us to do for now, though, is just, just look at his answer. Let's just look at his answer and kind of take that apart. Jesus says that the practice or the training of true worship 
And people who are true worshipers, the trainees that God is looking for, they practice, which means they train in worship in spirit and in truth. And the word, that worship, the word for worship that Jesus uses here is a verb that literally means this, the act of kissing the hand of another as a token of reverence or a token of admiration or a, a token of adoration. For, for this woman, like many of us, her, see, her mind, in her mind, worship was just like a religious act. It's just something you do when you go to church. And we know We know that for her, worship was just a a religious act because she asks a when and a where question when it comes to worship. When are we supposed to worship? Where are we supposed to worship? See, like us, I think she, in her mind, she already thought she knew the what and the how of worship. So she didn't need to ask what is worship or how do we do it. In her mind, she thought, well, I already know that. So what I need to know is when and where. It's like for us, Maybe a lot of us in this room, we feel like we've got the what and the how of worship figured out, right? It, worship is church music. You, you sing along with the words on the screen at church. That's what worship is. It's music that you sing along to. And how do you worship? You follow along the, the words on the screen. You sing out loud. Like We don't need to know the, what, the, the how or the what. We know that. We just know the when and the where. But Jesus, he responds to her when and where question. And he responds to our when and where questions, the ones that we think we already know the answers to, with a what and a how answer. So the first thing he says, what what is true worship? Jesus says real and true worship are the actions, they're the demonstrations of of reverence, of of admiration, of adoration. And God is, is looking for real and true worshipers. God is looking for adorers and admirers who actively point their actions of reverence, of admiration, and adoration towards him. That's who he's looking for. A.W. Tozer says it like this. Worship, according to Jesus, is admiration and adoration. is the admiration and adoration of God to the point of wonder and delight. So that's what worship is, according to Jesus. He, he answers the, what is it? It's admiration and reverence and adoration directed at God. It's the action, the overflow of adoration and admiration and reverence pointed to God to the point of wonder and delight. So that's what worship is. So then how do we do it? Jesus says how we worship is in spirit and in truth. That's how you do this. What is worship? Admiration, adoration, reverence. All aimed towards God. How? In spirit and truth. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? The, the, word that, the, the word for spirit that Jesus uses here refers to the undeniable truth about the essence of one's person, personality, and character. That's what a spirit is. It's, it's the thing that is most true about you that lives at the very center of who you are. Some of us, it's what we live out for other people to see. Some of us, that thing that's most true about you that lives at the center of who you are is the thing you hope nobody ever finds out to be true. So that's the word spirit. Spirit points to this undeniable truth about the essence of a person's personality and character. And so for us to worship in spirit means that we have to hold what's real and true about the nature of our person, personality, and character together with what is true about the real and true nature of God's person, personality, and character. You have to hold those two things together. 
One author says it like this, spirit is never a depersonalized force, but it refers to the true essence of one's person, personality, and character. Worshiping in spirit implies a worship that is deeply personal to God and us. It means to worship in spirit, you've got to let him into those spaces that you hope nobody ever finds out that they're true, that they're real. That God, he welcomes you into this space where you get to see what is ultimately the most true thing about who he is. That's what it means to worship in spirit. Truth, in this case, refers to this, what is true in any matter or under any circumstance. In other words, truth is facts, not feelings. That's what truth is all about. Truth is all about what is objectively real and true about anyone or anything at any given time. What's the truth? Not what I feel, not what I perceive to be true, but what is objectively true about anyone or anything or any situation at any given time. That's what truth is, what's real. So worshiping in spirit has to do with the deeply personal truth about us and God. And worshiping in truth means it has to do with all that is objectively true about everything going on around us, good or bad. And Jesus says, the practice of real and true worship takes both. It takes spirit and truth. So we took it apart, right? That's what it means. That's what worship is. And that's how we do it. We, we took it apart. So let's kind of reassemble it and put it back together. According to Jesus, the practice of true worship and true worshipers engage in the deeply personal act and actions of revering, admiring, and adoring the whole truth about the person, personality, and character of God. In light of the objective truth of our own personal brokenness and sinfulness, and in spite of anything and everything, good or bad, happening around us at any time. Does that change your definition of worship? Does that expand it a little bit? Dallas Willard says this, in, in this way, spirit and truth worship, this way we enter a life, not just a time of worship. He says the hymn of heaven will be a constant presence in our lives. See, another way of kind of getting our heads and hearts around this is, is like this, that, that practicing and training in spirit and truth worship, when it comes, it, it comes through the, the rhythm of, of recognition and reconciliation. And in that rhythm, it's on us to do the recognizing, right? So like, like with any of these disciplines, we talked about what spiritual disciplines are. They are training activities that we can do that enable us to do things that, that we otherwise couldn't do just by trying harder. Right, so it's training, not trying. So there's responsibility in this. There's responsibility in all of these disciplines, whether it's prayer, obedience, being word-centered, and in this case, worship. You have responsibility. There's a responsibility as you, a believer, to, to move in God's direction. We have ownership in this. And in this case, it's on us to do the recognizing. We seek to recognize what is honestly and authentically and completely personally true about God at his deepest level. Well, how do we do that? We've already talked about three of them. You want to know how to get to know God personally, honestly, and authentically at his deepest level? Prayer, obedience, and being word-centered. You practice the three disciplines we've already talked about. That's the way you can get to know who God is. 
And here's what we find out. The more you get to know God, you realize he's holy, which means he's unlike anything else. There is no one or no no thing like him. That he's perfect. You recognize that God really is holy and he really is perfect. And he really does love you. So you recognize that about God. And then what happens at the same time, too, we recognize what's true about God. We also recognize and we come to see and understand what is honestly, authentically, and personally true about ourselves at our deepest level. And as I do that, I'm just speaking for myself. Here's what I find out. I'm broken. I'm sinful. I can be prideful. I can be insecure. I can be selfish. These are all things that are true about me at the deepest level. Things that I don't want other people to know, but I got to recognize what's true about God and what's true about me. That's my responsibility in worship. And so we do the recognizing, but then God does all of the reconciling, which is pretty cool. Here's what that means. God begins to bring what's true about us and what's true about himself into alignment. And he does that in and through Jesus. And it's through reconciliation that the Bible tells us that what is and always has been true about Jesus is now and will always be true about us. Through reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Let me read that one more time just so it sinks in. Therefore, if anyone, is, if anyone is in Christ, he is a, one more time, maybe with a little more, like that's real and true. Like when, when we read that, if anyone is in Christ, therefore they are a new creation, it should not come off of our lips like this. A new creation. That's real, church. So let's try one more time. If anyone is in Christ, they are a? There you go. The old has passed away. The new has come. And you recognized it, but you couldn't reconcile it. So God did. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. See, spirit and truth worship, church, brings us into this place of constant awareness that being a new creation is our new reality. You live in Christ as a new creation. You function in Christ as a new creation. You operate your life through Christ as a new creation, which is why Jesus says worship must happen in spirit and in truth. According to Jesus, worshiping And becoming a worshiper that worships in spirit and truth is necessary because our admiration and adoration of God is the only fitting response to him bringing together the whole truth of who he is and the whole truth of who we are. And then welcoming us in, accepting us, loving us, and bringing us into alignment with him. There is no other way to worship. There is no other response. And there is nothing that is worth that outside of God. Because who else can do that? Who else can look at you and say, despite everything in your life, I love you, I welcome you in, I accept you, and I bring you into alignment with me? 
who, if they knew what was really true about you, could still say that? Would still say that? Who wouldn't hesitate to say that? There's only one person, that's God. We check up. When we, when we figure out and we find out what's, what's true, that 1% of us, right, that we try to hide, that we don't want people to know about, when they find out what happens, they usually hesitate. That's our fear in sharing it. It's like, oh, if they find out what's real and true, if they find out what I'm hiding in 1% of my life, there's no way that they would accept me, welcome me in, love me, let alone spend their time, effort, and energy, and life trying to bring me into reconciliation with God. And that's what God does. Nobody else can do that. And so God does what no one else can. Because of that, he is He's worthy. And that's actually what the word worship, that's where the word worship that we use today, that's where it comes from. The word worship comes from an old English word that literally translates worth-ship. It's giving God what he's worth. It's showing him, it's telling him how worthy he is. And that he is worthy of our admiration and our adoration like no one else is because he does what no one else can. Not just an hour a week. Not just a few songs but every single day of our lives. I love in Psalm 16, David says this, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. I bless the Lord who, who tells me the truth about who he is and the truth of who I am. I bless the Lord who brings what's wholly true about him and what's wholly true about me and brings them together. And in the night, not just when I'm at church, but even when I'm far away, in the night when things feel dark, my heart still instructs me. Church, can I just tell you, an aligned heart will continue to do that. If you align your life with God, if God begins to bring you into reconciliation, right, even when you're far away and things feel dark, your heart will continue to instruct you because that's what a heart aligned with God does. David says, I've set the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. So David wrote this psalm. He was one of the greatest practitioners and trainers of, of, uh, of spirit and truth worship. Like, if spirit and truth worship were the CrossFit games, like, David would be the most fit dude there, right? But like us, David's life was a mess. In fact, my guess is none of your lives will ever compare to the mess that is David's life. And you go, well, I'm not sure, Brad. I'm like, well, okay, did one, of your, did one of your kids sexually assault another one of your kids and then kill another one of your kids and then try to, in and of himself, overthrow you as the ruler of your house? No, David's did. His life was a mess. But in his training and worship, despite the mess in his life, he figured out something about God that's really similar to what Murph the Wonder Dog through his training and practice, figured out about my friend Jim. And that's this, living in such a way that we always set before ourselves the God who reconciles what's true about us with what's true about him is the safest place you can ever be in the whole universe. There is no safer place. What other security do you need? If, if, if the God of the universe and all of his holiness and all of his perfection accepts you and loves you and transforms you at your deepest level in spite of all of your mess to be and become like his son, then who cares what happens around you? What anybody thinks about you? What anybody says to you or anybody does to you? 
Who cares? David says it like this, because of an always and all times practice of spirit and truth worship, I will not be shaken. Can you say that? See, I think for a lot of us, it's like, no, we feel pretty shook up all the time. Right? Whether it's what we watch on the news, what we read in the paper, what, what, what happens in our lives around us. I think we feel pretty shook up all the time. What would it be like in your life to not be shaken? You want to know how to get there? Worship. What kind? Spirit and truth. So my, my challenge to us is train and practice in spirit and truth worship and do not be shaken by politics or election years or international conflict or inflation or taxes or the junk that goes on in your home or what happens in your school or the relationship drama that you have to deal with within your family or, or, or your boyfriend or girlfriend, whoever. Do not be shaken by anything or anyone. Because you're safe. In worship, you're safe. With the God who reconciles what's true about you and what's true about him and brings them together. See, for, for the woman at the well, like us, worship had only ever been a when and where question. Like us, she had only ever approached worship as just some religious act and some motions to go through. And like us, she was also buried in fear and in shame and in regret and in insecurity. And like many of us, right, there was no safe place in her life. I mean, think about it. The only way she could even get a roof over her head was to continually put herself into one dangerous situation after another, after another, after another. To allow herself to be objectified and abused was the only way that she could get shelter. The only way she could feel safe was to be dangerous. And what she learned from Jesus in this moment is what we need to learn from Jesus. The only way out, the only way out of danger is through. The only way out is through. Through practicing and training in spirit and truth worship. To become a spirit and truth worshiper. And in the story, you can see it happen. You see it happen, right? You see the moment, right, when this woman recognized her desperate need for Jesus. Jesus told her the truth. I know what's going on in your life. And in that recognition, right, Jesus does the work of reconciliation. Her response, his response to this woman was this. I am who you're looking for. And you are who I'm looking for. So meet me with the whole truth about who you are. And I'll meet you with the whole truth about who I am. And then I'll do for you what no one else can do. So that what's true about me becomes what's true about you. And what was true about you no longer is, and it will be like it never was. Can you imagine that? That what was true about you, according to the God of the universe, not only will no longer be true, but it will be like it never was. The Bible tells us that Jesus removes that. He removes sin and separates it as far as the east is from the west. And for the first time in who knows how long, this woman is finally safe. Because that's what worship does. Do you want that? Do you want safety? Do you need that? The only way is through. 
through the practice and training of spirit and truth worship. One author I read said this, when worship becomes the constant undertone of our lives, worship is the single most powerful force in completing and sustaining the restoration of our whole beings to God. Jesus says worship is like living water. In this story, he says, whoever drinks of this water will never be thirsty again because that becomes like a spring inside of us welling up to eternal life. And the woman hears about this, right? And she says to him, give me that water. I want that. And just so you make sure you know what's going on here, right? She's not asking for that water because she's thirsty and she needs to hydrate. She wasn't looking for a way to to quench her thirst. She was looking for shelter and for safety from shame and regret. Give me that, Jesus, so that I know I'm safe. Jesus wasn't inviting this woman, nor does he invite us to experience moments of worship. Jesus invited her and he invites you to a life of spirit and truth worship that brings us into a life that is aligned with him. And I know we've repeated this verse over and over and over and over and over again since the fall, but Jesus in John 10, 10 says that I came to give you an abundant life. That's it. Life to the full. So here's how. You stay close to him as he stays close to you. Keep your eyes on him as he keeps his eyes on you. You love him as he loves you. And in doing that, in training, in training and staying with Jesus, in training with keeping your eyes on Jesus, in practicing your love for Jesus, there is no safer place for you or I to be in the whole universe. So we we switched service around a little bit today, right? So that that we could do a little bit of worship on the front end, like singing and things like that on the front end. We could practice a little on the front end. You could hear the truth and then practice a lot on the back end. And that's what this is. When we sing, when the words go on the screen, it's practice. These are the training activities that you can do that will enable you to live a life that you could not do just by trying harder. And so today, here's here's my challenge for you in the next few minutes as we sing the, the next few songs. Bring what is whole and true about you. Together, meet Jesus in that space and accept what is whole and true about him. Recognize what is real about your life and recognize what is real about Jesus and then let Jesus do the reconciliation. That none of us, by the way, deserve or are entitled to, but Jesus gives it to us. Why? Because he loves us. That's the challenge. Now, if you want to say yes to Jesus, I'll be down front. If you want to join our church, I'll be down front. If you need prayer, I'd love to pray with you. Or you can spend time at the foot of the cross if you want to do that. But this is your time. And again, let me just say this. When you recognize that you've been reconciled into being a new creation, it doesn't sound like a new creation. Every part of your soul rejoices because God did for you and does for you what no one else can.
So practice spirit and truth worship in these next few minutes and then practice it again tomorrow. Whether it's putting on a song or, or singing a song or putting on whatever you need to put on in your radio, on your, on your, your car, going, going to work, whatever it is. Or here's the deal. Worship isn't just music and singing. You can worship through reading the Bible. You can worship through praying. You, should, you can worship by going for a walk outside because, again, all you're doing, what worship is, is bringing all of who you are and all of who God is together and God reconciling that. Worship is your life. Not just a few songs on a Sunday morning. You worship with your life. Set before yourself always the God of the universe, and you will not be shaken. That's my prayer today. Amen. Bless worship. Let's stand together and worship.